Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 6, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. Romans 6, 1 through 14. I've always uh, been fascinated by history. In fact, in college, I considered majoring in college. I ended up changing my mind, and I majored in religion instead, and we know the rest is history. Uh, but I've always been fascinated by history. A few, it's been several years ago, we visited uh, Colonial Williamsburg, and uh, we went to historic Jamestown, and it was fascinating look at, looking especially at some of the maps in that museum at Jamestown. They had maps of Native Americans and their populations and their tribes and where they were located. And you could press buttons and all these lights would light up of certain tribes. And it's, it was amazing. Just don't you wish you could go back and, and look at North America, what it, what it must have looked like back then in that history. It's fascinating. And yet at the same time, we wonder if certain facts in history are related to us. Are they re- relevant to us in some certain way? We can look at you know, things throughout history and think, it has nothing to do with my life here and now. What does that have to do with me? Well, also in historic Jamestown, uh, if you visit there, maybe I've told you this before, but uh, be on the lookout for, some, for a quote on the wall uh, by my ancestor, Michael Upchurch. Uh, it's, it was really neat. So, so I saw some relevance there, right? It's the quote, I was, I was hoping it would be like a, you know, a beautiful, majestic, or insightful quote. It was mainly about how he prefer, preferred the American corn to the English corn. He liked it better here. So nothing really exciting. Uh, but it, it, there, there did seem to be a little more relevance for me as I was looking at all the sites there. My ancestor was here and came over in 1638. And for all we know, most or all of the upchurches in North America have come from this ancestor. So almost 300 years ago, and yet there's this connection I immediately felt with that historical artifact, with that quote in time. Maybe you've wondered uh, about the relevance of what we read in the Bible for your own life, especially as we have just finished reading through Genesis, as we read through some of the Old Testament parts of Scripture. Or maybe as you've even thought about the relevance of the historical facts we read in the Gospels. What do those things have to do with us? Maybe even you've considered, you've thought about the resurrection. Yes, you know Jesus uh, lived on this earth. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. But is there any practical relevance for me in what, I, what I'm going through right now. You know it's important, of course. But what do events that happened 2,000 years ago have to do with me here and now? And I think we find a very insightful answer in our text for this morning. In Romans 6, 1 through 14, we see that those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, We are more connected to him in that event which took place over uh, 2,000 years ago than we could have ever imagined. Like we're not just connected like in my mind like I am with Michael Upchurch from 300 years ago. We are actually and truly united with Christ in his death and resurrection 2,000 years ago. That sounds weird, doesn't it? It seems odd, strange, out of the ordinary, because it is. It is supernatural, and it is for our ultimate good and everlasting life. Let's look at our text together. Romans 6, 
1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you uh, seeking your mercy and your grace, we pray that you would bless us with it in Christ. Use your word to penetrate uh, our hearts, uh, that we would receive it as you have written it, as you have given it to us, that we would receive it as not the truth which comes from humans, which the, but the truth which comes from you. We pray that you would use it to convict us of sin and to grind away at the, the wickedness we find within ourselves and use it to show us the grace that we have in Christ. Use it to, to give us faith in the promises you've given us in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Notice the context of our passage. In the previous uh, chapters, Paul's been talking about the power of Jesus' atoning death for sinners. That means he was sacrificed for sinners. It means he died in the place for sinners so that he received the punishment sinners deserved. So in Romans 5, 6, we read, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for whom? The ungodly. Jesus died for those who didn't deserve it, for the unrighteous, for the ungodly. But what then about all of our sin that we have? What about the sin that we still have? With every tick of the clock, our sin only increases. We only sin more and more every day. But again, here's the amazing nature of the gospel in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. As high as your sin goes, God's Grace goes even higher. So in light of this free grace, which covers all of our sin, Paul anticipates a question. Well then, can we keep on sinning intentionally so that we can just get more grace? If as much as we sin, God's grace increases all the more, maybe we can just sin all the more so that we'll receive even more of God's grace. Now, there are a couple of reasons someone might ask this question or someone might go in this direction. First, someone might ask this question because they love to sin. 
And so they might think, my relationship with God is great. I like to sin, and God likes to forgive. So I can keep sinning all I want, and God will keep forgiving. Now, very few will actually say that, right? They know better than to say that. But consider your own life and see if this isn't sometimes true of you. Do you go ahead and sin because you know God will forgive you on the other side? You're tempted to sin in a certain way. You know, you, you feel conviction from the Holy Spirit, and yet there's this little voice in your mind that says, God will have grace for you even if you do this, which is true. But isn't, doesn't that turn the gospel on its head? It completely does. This is an unbiblical view of grace. And if, it, if you behave in this way, it shows we haven't truly grasped the gospel. There's another reason someone might ask this question. It might be they're afraid of grace. They might say, you can't just tell people they're completely forgiven. They'll do all kinds of bad stuff if there are no consequences for their actions. You need to motivate them with warnings and threats. And if you tell people there's nothing they can do to lose God's favor in Christ, then they will not live lives of holiness. So one asks this question because he loves sin. The other asks it because he's afraid grace leads to loose living or to bad morality. And Paul says, really, they're both wrong in a sense. Paul answers the question in verse 2. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, no way, in other words, we shouldn't. We are those who have died to sin. So how can we continue living in it? Paul says, no way. We've died to sin. We can't go on living in it. And in this passage, we see that the same gospel which justifies us also provides the power for us in sanctification or becoming more like Jesus Christ in our lives, living righteous lives. We have died to sin and been raised to new life. So what does the resurrection have to do with me, especially as it relates to how I live, especially as it relates to how I deal with sin? What relevance does it have? So from our passage, I just want to show you these two things. First, our identity. And second, our instructions. So our identity in Christ. And then the instructions Paul gives that flow from our identity in Christ. So identity. What does the resurrection of Christ have to do with who we are? And we see that mainly in verses 4 through 10. Paul is explaining to these Christians what is true of them. This does not apply to everybody in the whole world. Right? This is the identity which is exclusively true, exclusively applies to those who have come to see that they are sinners who deserve hell, but who have trusted in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins, who have embraced Jesus by faith. So if you are in Christ, if you have repented of your sins and clung in faith to Jesus Christ, this is true of you. Paul says two main things about our identity. First, that we have died with Christ. And second, that we have been raised with Christ. If you are in Christ, then in some sort of mysterious way, 2,000 years ago, you died with Christ. And you were raised with Christ. Verse 3, all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into uh, his death, Paul's referring to our conversion and our baptism into the faith, our, our entrance into the faith. 
when we came into union with Christ through faith in Him. We also became united with Him in His death and resurrection. Verse 4, we were buried with Him so that we would live a new life. Paul uses several terms in verses 2 through 7 to describe what happened to us when we came to Christ, when we died with Christ. We died to sin, he says. We died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. Our old self was crucified with Christ. That old self which yearned to live its own life, that old self which desires uh, your pleasures for yourself, that old self which sat on the throne of your life, you died to that self. That old self died. He was buried. And this is more than just a metaphor for the change that has taken place in our lives. It is that, but it's more than that. In some mysterious way, we are united with Christ in his death. So one commentator says, So close is the association with Christ's death that we may be said to have been buried with him. So when Paul asks the question, shall we go on sinning so that we'll get more grace? The answer is, how could we? The old self was crucified 2,000 years ago. That old self is dead and buried. And as a result, verses 6 and 7, we are no longer slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So the death of Christ sets us free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. If you are in Christ, this is true of you, brothers and sisters. It's as if your head was in the guillotine and it was ready to drop at any moment. By your sin, you deserved it. You earned it by your rebellion against God. And justice would have been served if it had been dropped. But Christ died in your place and you have been set free. You have been released and the blade of God's judgment no longer hangs over your head. Have you recognized that, brothers and sisters in Christ? You no longer stand as one who is under the judgment of God because you have embraced Christ through faith. But not only that, you have also been freed from the power of sin. You are no longer a slave of sin. At one time, it ruled over you. You couldn't help but obey its every command. There wasn't even a struggle. It was useless. But Christ's death has broken the shackles of sin doesn't mean you don't sin anymore. How many of you know that's true? Amen. But it means you have a different king now. Somebody besides yourself, besides sin, sits on the throne of your life. Now it is Christ. It means now also you have the power to say no to sin. It means God is growing you in holiness every day. But sometimes I get the sense that we Christians feel like we have an inferiority complex when it comes to sin. We act as though we are completely helpless against sin and temptation. As though it's our ruler and we can't escape from it. But this doesn't jibe with what Paul says here. Right? He's saying that here's what's true of you in Christ. You've died with sin and been set free from the penalty and power of Sin, this is your identity in Christ. This is true of you. So embrace that truth. Embrace the promise of God here. Believe it. I have. When you're facing temptation, if you are in Christ, repeat back to yourself. Remind yourself of your identity. I have died with Christ. 
I have been crucified with Christ. I have died to sin. Sin is no longer my master, but Christ is. We have died with Christ and we have been raised with Christ. And that's the focus of verses 8 through 10. He hints at it in the later part of verse 4. We died with him so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Or another version says, walk in the newness of life. So look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So his, um, Paul's line of reasoning here, we shouldn't sin more so we'll get more grace. No, we died to sin when we died with Christ. And if we were united to Christ in his death, it is a sure thing that we will also be united with him in his resurrection from the dead. Our union with Christ guarantees our union with him in his death and in his resurrection. So what is true of Christ in his death and resurrection? So that is true of us as well. This is who we are in Christ. This is the identity of those who are in Christ. And so Paul then moves from our identity, who we are in Christ. We have died with Christ. We have been raised with him. Notice what he says we are to do in light of that identity. Our identity informs our instructions. What does the resurrection of Christ have to do? Not only with who we are, but how we live, in other words. And Paul explains that in verses 11 through 14. So consider the instructions he gives now. What the resurrection of Christ has to do with how you live, how we live in Christ. So notice these four instructions Paul gives in light of our union with Christ. In light of here, who you are, here's what you must do. First in verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. So this is a command, think about it, to think in a certain way. In your mind, to consider yourselves, to reckon yourselves, to count it as such. Not because you aren't dead to sin and alive to God, but because that's actually who you are. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. The ancient church father Origen says, To obey the cravings of sin is to be alive to sin. But to not obey the cravings of sin or succumb to its will, this is to die to sin. If you've ever, if, if I were to be walking through the woods and stumble across, say, a, a dead deer, a dead animal of some kind, do you think I would immediately kneel down next to that dead deer and try to shake it and see if it was really dead? I would keep my distance. I would try to find a long stick and kind of poke it to make sure it, what, what's going to happen if it's alive. I've seen this happen in videos before. Somebody thinks a big animal is dead and all of a sudden it jumps up and you are in trouble, right? And so I would take the stick and I would poke it to make sure it's not alive or angry, <laughs> Just to make sure. And Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So when sin pokes you with temptation, it's just a dead body. You are dead to sin. You're not going to budge. Don't give it any response at all. Consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God. So when God pokes you by His Holy Spirit, then what's your response? Then you respond quickly. 
You move. You are alive to God. You get up immediately. You move to obey. When He pricks your conscience, you respond because you are alive to God now. You're responsive to His every command and His desire. This is who you are, Paul says. So now consider yourself in this light. Bring your behavior in line with your identity in Christ. Second instruction he gives is in verse 12. It's a negative command. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts. So in a positive way, we could say, dethrone the sin in your life. Refuse to obey it. Rebel against sin as the dethroned king of your life. The third and fourth instructions are in verse 13. There's a negative. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. And then there's the positive. Do present yourselves as alive to God and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Offer your very selves to God. We must not only consider with our minds that we are dead to sin and alive to God. This tells us we must actively present our our bodies, the members of our bodies, to God as those alive from the dead. We must present the parts of our bodies as instruments of righteousness. Have you thought about that before? Have you thought about this living a life of righteousness in that sense? So notice Paul gives instructions to the mind, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, but then he gives instructions for our physical members, the members of our bodies. Christianity isn't simply a religion of the mind. It is a religion, a a faith of our whole bodies. Considering certain things and then obeying with our bodies. So think about this. Kids, when you take things that don't belong to you, when you shove your brother or sister, you are using your hands for unrighteousness. When you talk back to your parents, You are using your voice box, your mouth, your tongue, your lips. You are using them against your parents in unrighteousness. So that maybe that word sounds a little tame to you. Wickedness. This is evil against God. And hopefully parents, adults, you can think of this for ourselves, right? Do we not use the members of our bodies for sin, for unrighteousness, for wickedness? When we speak evil of someone else, when we degrade someone else with our words, when we tear someone down with our words, this is not simply unhelpful speech to other people. Don't make light of what you're doing when you are degrading someone in the image who has been made in the image and likeness of God. It is evil when we use our members for unrighteousness. So consider, how can you present your voice box, your mouth as instruments of righteousness? How can you present your eyes instead of presenting them to sin to, as tools to be used for unrighteousness, how can you present them to God for tools for righteousness? Think about what James says about the tongue and how it can be used for evil. He says, so brothers and sisters, from the same source comes out uh, 
evil speech and good speech, my brothers, this should not be so. And we, and yet we do the same thing with our hands, with our feet, with the members of our bodies. We are double-minded. We are presenting at some times our hands for use in unrighteousness and others for righteousness. And brothers and sisters, it should not be this way. So we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, and we actively and physically offer up ourselves, all that we are, to God for the purposes of righteousness. So the word picture is is that the parts of our bodies are tools, or even weapons is one of the connotations of this word, which we can use for either unrighteousness or righteousness. And really, we should be training ourselves in the habits of righteousness, right? Right? The things that you do regularly, realize it or not, you are training yourself in that way or another. You're either training yourself for unrighteousness or you're training your your body for righteousness. It takes someone many, many years of practice to become, say, a master in Taekwondo, right? And how do they do it? Well, they practice a lot. The, the boring part of becoming good at something, practicing a lot. And really, I, I bet, I don't know all the details of Taekwondo, but my guess would be that they practice a lot of the same moves over and over and over and over again. They learn new moves, no doubt, as they go on. But it's probably, like I wrestled in high school, a lot of it is about technique. You have to learn the technique so that you can put it into practice in a real situation, in a competitive situation. Now imagine someone enters into a Taekwondo tournament, having never practiced Taekwondo. And they say, I just want all my moves to be spontaneous, (laughs) from the heart. I want them to be real and authentic. You can imagine how that would turn out. It would probably be a viral video pretty shortly. It would look silly. You'd be able to tell the one who has trained from the one who hasn't, not only from the way he moves awkwardly and untrained, but because of who won and who lost. But think about this when it comes to our spirituality. We often may think that everything has to be spontaneous in order for it to be genuine or from the heart. But wouldn't it make more sense if we actually try to train ourselves for righteousness? You know, we use the term spiritual disciplines. Disciplines because it's not always easy. We don't always want to do it. But we know it's good for us because we are training ourselves for righteousness. We ought to, to exercise and train ourselves in righteousness, in using our hands. and our, We ought to think of it that way, I think. Training ourselves, the members of our bodies even, for righteousness. Now, the temptation for us in all of these things might to get these, these things backwards, the identity and the instructions that flow from it, right? So someone might be tempted to say, I need to do these things, I need to obey these things, I need to be righteous in order to find my identity in Christ, and then he'll have favor upon me, and then he will love me. If I do these things, then God will love me. That is getting the order completely wrong. Here's the order. We have been identified with Christ through our faith in him as we repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus to save us. Now this is our identity in Christ. This is who we are and who we are flows into righteous living. We, we live for him because of his love for us. 
not in order to gain it. We live for His glory and righteousness, not because this is what causes Him to give us His favor, but because He has already given it to us freely in Christ and of His grace. Otherwise, we're all dead and doomed. Amen? But thanks be to God, in His death and resurrection, He has given us grace upon grace upon grace. And this gospel rescues us from God's wrath and grows us in righteousness. The great theologian Charles Hodge says this, The only effectual method of gaining the victory over our sins is to live in communion with Jesus Christ, to regard his death as securing the pardon of sin, as restoring to us the divine favor, and as procuring for us the influences of his Holy Spirit. It is those who thus look to Christ, not only for pardon, but holiness, that are successful in subduing sin, while the legalist remains its slave. And in case we still haven't got it in verse 14, Paul gives, throws us another promise. Sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. I think about my own children and how they live under my love. And I tell them, there's nothing you can do to make me stop loving you. And do you know, I'm a sinful human being. And I don't always love my children or others as I should. I often sin in that. And so if I, as a sinful man, know how to love my children, at least in some godly sense, how much more does God the perfect father of all, love those who are his children. Brothers and sisters, sin will not be your master. Brothers and sisters, you are not under law, but you live under the protecting and loving arms of God's grace for you in Christ. So then let us, let us live in that reality. Let, us, let our living flow from our identity in Christ. May we live for his glory and for the good of one another in the church. Let's pray together.